The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform and promises to be the next frontier for human experiences on the internet. Into the Metaverse covers companies, technologies, and trends that are bringing these promises to life. Join creator and host Jonathan Ross Friedman, founder and CEO of SuperSocial, as he interviews the brilliant minds that are building, shaping, and investing in the Metaverse. Welcome to episode 20 of Into the Metaverse, where we help make sense of the Metaverse through deep interviews with the brilliant minds who build, create for, and invest in the Metaverse. We have a fantastic conversation on tap for you today. I'm Jan, and joining me today is Michael Orbach, founder and general partner at Subversive Capital, an investment firm and senior VP at Albright Stonebridge Group, which is part of Denton's Global Advisors, which is a global strategic advisory and commercial diplomacy firm. Among other things, Subversive Capital operates the Punk ETF, an actively managed fund that invests in globally listed securities that provide services and products that support the infrastructure and applications of the metaverse. Punk ETF is notorious because it has a short exposure to Facebook parents company, Meta Platforms. As always, to clarify, everything discussed here is not a financial advice. The podcast is strictly educational and entertaining and is not investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decision. So with this intro and disclaimers, Michael, welcome to Into the Metaverse. Pleasure to have you with me. Jan, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Great. So digging in, Michael, as we continue to build an evolving consensus around what the metaverse is, the first question we really like to ask every guest speaker that comes to the show is, what is the metaverse in your mind? And maybe not less important, what it is not? Okay. Big question to start the pod. Let's start with what it's not. What it's not is what Facebook has built, which you mentioned in your intro. We've been short Facebook since inception. Facebook is down 50% and they've spent billions of dollars on sort of their version of the metaverse. The sort of the ready player one metaverse is something that we're not going to see anytime soon. And the idea that we are building that ready player one infrastructure isn't where the metaverse is going and what it's going to be. And so in thinking about what then the metaverse is, because it's not horizons, it's not ready player one, it's not 20 year old, 30 year old, 40 year old graphics, as we saw with Facebook's launch of horizons in Spain and France this week, the metaverse is just a more immersive experience. And obviously that includes virtual reality augmented reality, but it also includes audio and other spatial sensory experiences that encapsulate sort of your daily digital life. And so right now we have a very 2D experience on the internet. I think that will continue. We're starting to get more 3D, particularly with the AirPod. I think the AirPod would be if it was spun out of Apple, sort of top 20, fortune 20 company, just the AirPod itself. And so that provides a spatial awareness and sound and more acceptance of podcasts, et cetera. I think that we are moving into a more immersive experience where your identity becomes a more three-dimensional figure. You can express yourself in ways through the metaverse that you can't through your two-dimensional, one-dimensional experience on the internet. We're definitely going to spend much more time talking about meta platforms, what may or may not be their interpretation of what the metaverse could be. But one thing that 
I want to echo that you called out, which I've been saying many times, is that also wondering if you would agree with that, is that the metaverse is also not a device. I think what happened with the announcement of Meta changing Facebook's name to Meta and really turning on the light for the rest of the world that this metaverse thing is actually happening, which was something very nascent, but it also created this after effect where still many people perceive the metaverse as something that is VR headset or will be exclusively accessible through these headset that we are going to wear on our head. And we have been taking a pretty clear stance in the podcast that this is not correct. And that's a bit of a fallacy because you're going to essentially be able to access these quote unquote metaverse experiences from any form factor all the way to any touch devices, potentially even autonomous vehicle, because once we don't need to control the wheel anymore. Well, we're probably going to want to access the metaverse while the autonomous vehicle is operational. Do you subscribe to that worldview that it's basically the device agnostic or do you have a different point of view? I ascribe to that a hundred percent. The metaverse is not contingent on us wearing a VR headset. There's going to be some really fun, cool things happening in VR. And there's a bunch of companies that are working on very immersive, very cool experiences in VR. We've invested in a platform called AX Labs, which is developing one of the first first-person shooter games in VR, which is this exceptionally cool game with great graphics, great interface, great community. There's some really interesting stuff in the med tech space using VR for the treatment of anxiety and attention deficit disorder and other forms of stress or mental health. So VR is definitely going to play a role. VR, we believe, is going to play a much bigger role. We know Apple is working on an AR glass. Other companies have been working on AR. So I do think that we'll be experiencing the physical world differently through AR and different AR devices, both for pleasure and in the workforce, whether it's in the military applications or oil and gas industry or other types of medical professions, et cetera. AR is going to be very helpful with surgeries and other things. And so that's interesting. And then, as I mentioned before, we think audio, other sensory experiences, and there's ways to become more immersive just in your sort of general 2D experience on the internet now. This is not Zoom or whatever platform we're using now is not considered the metaverse, but we are, we've become accustomed through COVID where our experiences with relationships and space are very different. So just the mental capacity to take in the fact that you're a thousand miles away or 600 miles away in a different city than I, yet we've got this connectivity in our conversation is very different today than it was when FaceTime first explored the idea of face-to-face -face communication or Skype video from 20 years ago. There's been a mental shift. And so it's not necessarily just the human species itself wants to mentally shift to a more immersive communication platform and how we interact with others, whether it's through gaming, through Roblox or through other environments, that's very different. And that shift didn't happen technologically. It happened in our brain. And what's fascinating about what you're saying, which I subscribe to many of the points you've made is this is exactly why I like to start the podcast with asking people the question of what is the metaverse? Because we get all of these different perspectives. For example, we just had a few weeks ago, Tim O'Reilly, who for him, the metaverse is already here. Zoom in a way is the metaverse because it's the digital place where we can get together, even though if it's not 3D, I don't necessarily agree with that. I personally do believe 
that we're talking about a transition to a 3D internet when we talk about the metaverse. And I think there's a lot of proponents for that. Last week, we also had Philip Rostel, who created Second Life, who is now working on high fidelity and very much to your point about sensory experience and audio, how big of a role that's going to play. And we see that today with the different modalities of how young people play on Roblox, for example. They play on the phone or on iPad, and then they open Discord, and this is where they talk, but they play on the phone. And so it's obvious that audio is going to play an important role in creating that sense of immersion that you described on the metaverse, which actually is a, a great springboard to the next question I wanted to ask you. There are many people in the media who intertwine the definition of the metaverse with this emerging category of Web3 technologies, crypto, blockchain, NFTs, etc. And so in your mind, how, if at all, does Web3 technologies fit into how you view the metaverse? It doesn't. I think that Web3 was trying to grab onto a vertical that they fit in. And I think they did that for VC and capital markets investment. And it's almost like naming a neighborhood for real estate agents, like a Nolita or Tribeca. Like you need a cute name to be able to sell a particular product at a premium. And so I think Web3 has become this made up name for the crypto evangelists to have a community and a label for what they're building. That said, I think if I look across the quote unquote web three or crypto landscape, what jumps out to me as the instrument that will play a role in what we're calling the metaverse or a more immersive experience is just that non-fungible token. And I'm not talking about the punk or the ape or the clip art that my son made and uploaded it to OpenSea. If we can create these digital identities and digital properties that have a use case that are non-fungible, then I think you're onto something as the internet becomes more immersive, you're gonna want security and identity to be rock solid. And I'm not sure blockchain is the right technology. It's basically a glorified Excel file with various tabs, but if everybody's using the same ledger, then I think we might be onto something. <clears throat> to continue with the real estate metaphor, if I've got an apartment, and I want to sell the apartment, there's no reason why my title, my deed cannot be an NFT and we can transact. And as opposed to going through all the paperwork and the eight hours of signatures and closing, there has to be an easier way to transfer ownership from one individual to the other. And I think that transfer of ownership or that sharing of identity or that even with little things, like if an artist had created an NFT or there's some sort of luxury item, if you've got a Rolex watch in the real world and you want a Rolex that's one of a hundred NFTs and you're showing it off in some new gaming platform that you have, people like to present to the world how they want to present in real life. And I think that they're going to want to do that in the metaverse or in that more immersive experience. And so I think that particular element of crypto plays an important role. The payments part of it and the store of value and reserve and digital gold, I think is a completely separate conversation, which I'm happy to get into, but I don't think it plays a role in what we're trying to build in terms of a more immersive experience online. Thank you for that. I want to double click on the NFTs because I am personally fascinated by NFTs as well. And in terms of the opportunities it provides both to creators and for the owners. There's obviously a lot of chatter and a lot of people who challenge the very notion of blockchain and Web3 technologies and does it even really require it? And I wanna double click on one of the things you said, 
they're starting to emerge more use cases in the quote unquote metaverse, or at least proto metaverse platforms, like if it's Sandbox and Roblox, et cetera. When we talk about that sense of ownership, that proof of ownership, do you believe that they're first going to be a clear use case in these virtual worlds that can then guide what it could mean of how it interacts with in real life and the physical world? Or do you think that what is going to happen with the metaverse is going to be very much virtual and isolated? It's almost like a separate parallel universe that is not necessarily tightly integrated into real life. Is that what you think is going to happen initially? Would it be enough? Would enough people you think are going to care at a global scale what these technologies essentially provide them from the ownership perspective? Yeah, it's a really good question. And thinking about what vertical or what sector could have that sort of mass adoption vis-a-vis -vis NFTs. And I think it's probably something to do with entertainment or music. There's a reason why Square bought Tidal. There's other musicians that have come out. I think Snoop has done an NFT music platform. There's some interesting entertainment companies out of Australia that I've heard about recently that are using NFTs and entertainment and IP assets. Because music is so global and the United States' number one export is entertainment assets or media assets, I think there's a use case in there that could potentially move to global adoption in terms of ownership. It's interesting. I've got a 13-year-old son, and he is a musician. He's a prodigal drummer, excellent musician, and he loves listening to music. And usually his experience of music is YouTube or one of the platforms like Spotify or Tidal or whatever. But this summer, he got really into CDs, compact discs. And so we bought him an old compact disc player, and he's collecting now CDs. His friends as well are into it as well. And it's the ownership of music. They do not want the, the digital representation of the music and nothing to do with the sound. Obviously, a Tidal version of a song that he loves is going to be much better quality than the CD. But the CD comes with the case, it comes with the book, comes with an actual piece of property that is his and he can carry it around and he owns it. And so <clears throat> if I think about what that could look like in the digital space where my son doesn't have to carry around a CD player with the headphones and the whole thing, which is novel and unique for this generation, it wasn't novel and unique for our generation by any stretch of the imagination, I think NFTs will play a role in that crossover. But I think today's kids are longing for the physical, they spend so much time in the digital that, you know, anything that they can experience in the physical world, I think that the human species and our condition us to touch feel, I think we're going to see a shift. And that's why if I think about what industry is going to marry the two, I think it's entertainment and music. You're making a really good point. A few months ago, I wrote something called the real and the unreal, where I talk exactly about those type of things. And it does make a lot of sense to me, to your point, that the more we're connected to the cloud, quote unquote, the more we're going to long for more for that physical connection. And it's not just with people. I think it's also the artifacts, the things we want to use and own. I still remember as a 10 year old looking at my brother's bedroom whenever he let me in for a sec. I remember like this massive pipeline of CDs and the packages. And this is why I personally still am in love with consumer products. This is why I still buy physical books, because there's something about, and I think there's something to be said about that connection of a physical item also 
what is the virtual manifestation of that? And I think also, what is the virtual manifestation of ourselves as an avatar, right? Because people like your kids, 13 year old, I think of them as potentially the first metaverse native population who are going to potentially have multiple identities, not just one when it comes to the metaverse. But fascinating point, definitely a whole conversation could be done just around that. But I want to switch gears and talk about something that I know you've been passionate about for quite a long time in your career, what we now call G factors, taking into consideration environmental, social governance factors into the investment practice, essentially, for our audience who is less familiar with that. And I know there's now a lot of challenges around the category, but you clearly have strong views around building what we think of as an ethical metaverse. And before we dive into specific companies and platform, would love if you can give your thoughts on how the web we have today ended up where it is. What can we do to ensure that the metaverse is a more ethical, diverse, and welcoming place to experience our digital selves in? And then lastly, what does it mean to have an ethical virtual realm? So I dropped a bunch of stuff. Maybe we can start with what are your initial thoughts on how and why Web2 ended up where it is today? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been involved in the dot-com, and I guess you could call it the beginning of Web2. I worked for various internet companies from 1998 to 2001, starting the dot-com boom. And I was involved in the first internet television company called Pseudo Programs, which is fantastic, great platform, but there was no broadband, so nobody would watch it. We were ahead of our time. But the people behind these products, many of them have gone out of business and some people have gone on to do other things. I went on to do other things for 20 years before I came back to the digital. We believed that the internet was going to be this egalitarian medium that was going to democratize the world. And it was ability to communicate across culture, across class, across gender. And it was really going to bring people together and create an environment and even a core space that was very different from the generation before us, like the G's and the Boeing's and the General Mills and the other big corporate behemoths that had taken over our, both our consumer lives, but influenced how we live our lives. And so the internet had this potential to democratize that process as opposed to just telling us how you want us to do X, Y, and Z. And then I think there was a shift and I think it probably happened around September 11th because it was like right at the cusp of the dot-com boom and bust. And so the bust was happening the summer before 9-11 and then it basically just continued after 9-11 and into 2002. And I think what we saw was that a very small group of individuals could disrupt the global way of life and where we were moving and using the internet to push democracy and other types of liberal principles around the globe. Not everybody was ready for that. But the Western liberal ideals, they turned on themselves. And we've been on a 20 year journey I and mean, we just ended the longest war in American history in Afghanistan last year. And over that 20 years, our condition, particularly in the West has changed. And our view of the world has changed and not for the better. And Web2 has played a significant role in that process for us. And we're in a much more dangerous place than we were when we started this journey in the late 90s and early 2000s, the sort of the Web2 journey. And... It's because our media diet has changed. You now get your news from Facebook or you get it from Twitter or you get it from bulletin boards or 4chan or Truth Social now. This idea that we have custodians of information or editors 
or fact checkers uh, have just completely disappeared. And the web two environment has amplified that in a way that has had very negative externalities and consequences. As we've seen our fall from the democratic beacon here in the United States to countries in Europe that have moved towards the right, places like Hungary and other Eastern European countries, corruption is rampant. The internet has been used to help organize things like genocide and other human rights abuses. And so what we anticipated the internet to be is actually turned into sort of a morass of hate and misinformation and a collaborative moment to change the human condition toward a much more undemocratic and illiberal world view. It's fascinating how it started with the Arab Spring and using social media to make political statement revolutions. Everyone still remember those few fundamental months of the Arab Spring. And then here we are in 2022 listening to what you're saying. I think it's really interesting how you combined what happened with the dot-com crash and also the 9-11 effect and the role of media as a builder in the space. One of the things I get excited about is, okay, as entrepreneurs, we can help shape a different eventuality for those platforms. But we now have this almost like a clash of internet civilizations. And I, I've mentioned this in an interview on Cointelegraph a, a couple of months ago, where there is this clash of civilization between Web2 companies, world guarded, right? They control a lot of the traffic on the internet. Facebook is one of them, but there's a bunch of other platforms that are doing so as well. And then on the other side, we have the decentralization maximalist, the people who are like, everything needs to be open, completely decentralized. Everyone can own whatever they want. There's full interoperability between different platforms. We own our data, which is a question. Do people even want to own their data? Are they going to do something with that data? Are they going to be comfortable dealing with their data? People can't even save their password. Imagine being owners of their own data. And right. so my question to you, when we think about what is that ideal future or or what could that ethical metaverse become? What do you think are going to be the key challenges between those different forces that are competing for hegemony in the next wave or the next era of the internet? How do you envision that struggle playing between big leading Web2 companies and between emerging companies? And then to spice things up, I'd love for you to also keep in mind what could the role of the regulator be in all of that? I'll start with your last comment that for us to have an ethical online platform in a democracy requires that democracy regulate and ensure proper gatekeeping. We have a regulatory system that is way behind the eight ball when it comes to understanding algorithms, understanding use cases, understanding gatekeeping and fact checking and foreign influence on these platforms. And so it's really important that the regulator get this right. That is really the only way, you know, companies, corporations, getting to your further earlier point around ESG, a lot of that's just window dressing. Companies are going to do what companies are going to do for the most part. And not all companies behave this way, but the majority of companies behave this way, which is, you know, they want to do right by their shareholders. 
and they want to do right by their standards for top line revenue, EBITDA, profitability is a key driver because they're publicly traded and they're judged on a multiple of either revenue, depending on if you're in a high growth company or EBITDA, if you're a more established company. These are metrics that investors look at. And to do that as a highly regulated industry, internally regulated, is going to influence the number of users on your platform, period. And so these platforms have been repulsed by and have lobbied against more stringent regulatory frameworks. And we are in desperate need of a new regulatory framework for not just Web 2, but certainly going into Web 3. And I have lots of ideas on how we can do that. The problem is we don't really have a partner in our governing structure within Congress now to do it. And part of the reason we don't have that is because we are so bifurcated and so partisan. And the reason we're hyper-partisan in today's world is because these platforms have been unregulated and allowed all of this misinformation to provide us with at least one party in the United States that believes that Trump, for instance, won the election and QAnon is real and the Democrats are a bunch of pedophiles with underground children cages with We've literally lost the script. And so when I think about who the regulators are, I think it's going to be very difficult to get to a point where we have not just a safe Web 2, but a safe Web 3. I want to double click here and organize for our audience what was just discussed, because I think it's important. And I do find it tragically amusing because we are sitting here dreaming, thinking about the future of the internet, talking about what the metaverse may or may not be, why it is important, how it's going to make impact on people's lives. And we have all of these incredible idealistic principle of what we want the metaverse to be. We built a web that at the moment became essentially a platform for completely open discourse to the level of spreading misinformation and causing harm to society. In order to make a change there, you need a regulator that actually understands what needs to be done about it and how do you actually fix and take care of what is being done now. But in order to have that regulator operate effectively, we need to make a change in the way the Congress thinks about these frameworks. But in order to make that change, we need to avoid having that misinformation from the get-go so there could actually be a functioning Congress in place. So taking all of those into account... I have to say, I'm, I, I am a relentless optimist. I don't know where you sit, the pessimist optimist. I am a relentless optimist, but I am very concerned that we sit here and talk about the future of the internet and how amazing the metaverse is going to be. And we're all going to dress up in our avatars and it's going to be fun. And we're going to have avatar for a party, avatar for this. And we're going to all own a piece of the internet, which is the maximalist point of view of the internet, of the metaverse and decentralization and the role of blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is we can't even get what's happening now. And so it feels like this sort of human condition of yes, Next time it's going to be better, it's going to be different. But I don't believe that without fixing the today, we're going to have a better tomorrow. I'm curious if you share that perspective or you want to share a bit more optimism with our audience today. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not going to be sharing any optimism. I mean, think about Fermi's paradox. Fermi's paradox is essentially a, a theorem that state posits, like, why haven't we been visited by extraterrestrials? That obviously when the universe was created through the Big Bang and then expanded outward, there must be civilizations out there that are much more advanced than ours that could have figured out how to travel through space-time in a way that our species has not evolved to do. And the paradox is that 
the universe is probably full of a bunch of dead aliens. And the reason for that is that you get to a certain level of intelligence, you get to a certain level of civilization, and one of three things happen. You either kill each other off in war, you die of disease, or you just can never get off your rock and the climate has changed in trying to get there. And I think that we are potentially in that area. I mean, our species has not been around very long, just in the history of this planet and certainly in the history of the universe. And I don't have a lot of hope that we're ever going to get there. I think we're in a very dangerous period. And I think that our web too has amplified that in a way that it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, just think about, think about geopolitics because that's sort of my other world, right? I still work for the Albright Stonebridge group and I help companies and individuals understand how governments operate, et cetera. And I have this debate with my son, again, I'm this 13 year old kid that is on TikTok. And I think like the average amount of time that a kid uses TikTok a month is like 26 to 28 hours. And that's an average. I think in the tri-state area, it's probably more like 40 hours a month, but let's call it 30 to 40 hours a month of TikTok. And like I said, my son's a musician. He's constantly searching the internet for music videos, drums, merchandise related to bands that he likes. But when he goes on TikTok, he's not being served a bunch of musician content. He's being served things like justice for Johnny, Amber Heard is a liar. He's being served things like Biden suffers from dementia and falls off bicycles and can't walk upstairs. He's being served things like, did you know that Pfizer was fined for a drug that killed two people? How could you trust them to make your vaccine? And this is a 13 year old boy that's scrolling through that and getting this content. And this algorithm is controlled and owned by an enemy state, by the Chinese government. And our regulators are doing nothing. And so that is extraordinarily dangerous. And not to be hypocritical here, Facebook has done this and they're an American company. Facebook is responsible for the outcome of elections in this country and other countries to the negative with undemocratic principles. They're responsible for the fact that we've got 30 to 40% of our population that refuse to get vaccinated. We have a polio outbreak in New York. You know, there's a direct correlation between the polio outbreak in New York and our social media platforms. We have a suicide epidemic among young teenage girls because of Instagram. So it's not just TikTok being Chinese and this is a Trojan horse, which I'm nervous about. We can't even regulate our American platforms. And now we've let the Chinese government basically capture the attention of our children in a way that is extraordinarily dangerous. Now in five years, he can go on a jury. So now he's on a jury, a jury of the peers. Think about how his brain has been wired with the data that he's receiving in TikTok and now have him make a decision on somebody's life and then take him to the age of 28 and he decides to run for Congress. How has his brain been wired to understand the world in which he lives in? Now fast forward to 40 to 45 and he wants to run for president. This is what we are creating. We are creating a generation of people that there is no truth. There are no facts. And it's going to be very hard to put that back in the bottle. So going back to my first point, I think our species is on a trajectory where we will prove Fermi's paradox, where our rock will essentially be without our species. These are pretty profound things you're outlining here, and especially having a conversation with a 13-year-old. But this is exactly part of the challenge. We talk about the future and then talk about the metaverse, and we haven't figured out yet how to deal with 2D social media 
imagine how more difficult it's going to be in a world where you can be anyone with any identity, with a pseudonym and an avatar as your face, with no email address, and you're immersed in a 3D world where you're literally embedded in a virtual environment where our behavior will come to life. We're not going to behave differently, quite the opposite. It actually will give us even more freedom to be different versions of ourselves, which is not necessarily going to be a positive thing. All of these are super important things to figure out. I think it's on companies as well, not just a regulator. Of course, we need a framework. But I think I hope to see a new generation of entrepreneurs that is also building a better future because there's always going to be bad actors. But I want to finish off this point just by giving just a tiny bit of optimism, maybe a bit sarcastic optimism to people. I listened to a, a, some podcast recording with Elon Musk, and he said something that really rang well for me, which is, at least from a climatic disaster, he said, we probably have 500 million years to figure this out. And so I think I'm optimistic. If we have 500 million years to figure some things out, that gives me some sense of optimism. <laughs> At the same time, like Elon Musk, who claims to be a free speech maximalist and may be forced to go through with the acquisition of Twitter, his definition of free speech is not our constitutional definition of free speech. Twitter is a company, publicly traded, but a private platform and has a set of rules. I can go onto the public square at Washington Square Park and spew lots of racist, anti-Semitic hate, and that I'm exercising my constitutional right. I shouldn't be allowed to do that on Twitter. Twitter should be allowed to take down comments that I'm making that inspire violence, racism, anti-Semitism, or hate. And Elon Musk thinks the exact opposite. He thinks that the good comments will filter to the top and the bad comments will be extinguished to the bottom. And you don't need to have gatekeepers. You don't need to have editors. You know, again, to my New York, I can go to Washington Square Park and spew racism. If I create a racist column, the New York Times does not have to print it and they shouldn't print it. And so while Elon Musk may think we have 500 million years from a scientific perspective, he's actually a part of the problem in moving, um, in moving our society in a direction that it's going to be more hateful and more angry with less truth and less fact at our disposal than other entrepreneurs that are trying to do things better. I am officially inviting Elon Musk to this podcast to talk about all of these things. I did save the best for last. Moving into more specific companies, I do want to spend a bit of time on Meta Platforms, which is Book's parent company. You said in a Bloomberg interview recently that when the Punk ETF launched, and I'm quoting you, Facebook seems to be the antithesis of what actual consumers want their digital futures to look like. Mark and his team are not the best custodians of our digital futures. Have at it, let's rip into Meta a little here. On the one hand, I'm an entrepreneur and I think Mark Zuckerberg is one of the greatest company builders of this era. For good or bad, he built one of the largest companies ever to be built. And he did it in a pretty short period of time. Having said that, he, together with the platform, have caused a lot of issues, which we, I think you talked at length about in the show today. What do you think the role that meta platforms, if at all, could or should play in the evolution of where the internet is going? Because with a, a couple billion daily active users, they're not really going anywhere. So what is the role that, imagine you have a seat on the board and you're an active independent board member and you're actually independent and you're on the board, where do you help navigate that massive Titanic? If I were on the board, which I wouldn't be, but let's say I were on the board, 
and Mark didn't have a preferred share class, I would remove him as CEO. <laughs> that would be the first thing I would do. But having not being on the board and being on the other side as an investor that is short Facebook and will continue to increase our short over time, I do not ascribe to the fact that Facebook is this behemoth that can't go away. Again, I was involved in the dot-com boom and bust and a number of the properties like AOL, Prodigy, Netscape. And then if you go back to the television manufacturers or the phone companies, they are not what they once were. And many of them are just gone, period. Some of the underlying technology and patents are held by other companies that operate today. I think Facebook has made this bet and they're betting the farm on their version of the metaverse, which is this ready player one with really bad graphics. And they're going to fail miserably. The VR headset, we've got all three versions of it here. We never use it. We occasionally use it. I thought ping pong was fun. My son did the lightsaber one. We don't put it on. Most people my age and older get nauseous using it. And he's putting a lot of resources and effort there and ignoring the other part of the platform that he could potentially pivot and make less toxic, more interactive and bring new users on that have escaped the platform to other things like Twitter and TikTok and Reddit and other platforms that are more attractive to a younger generation. I don't know anyone under the age of 20 that is on Facebook in my personal universe. So I'm sure there are other people that are on Facebook, but Facebook is not a platform that's very attractive. I use Facebook as a way to post pictures of my son for family and friends from high school, but that type of platform is easily replicable where I have photo sharing or some type of platform like an Instagram that isn't trafficking in body image issues, but just a repository for me to share with family and friends. If that's really the value that Facebook has, then I don't think Facebook is around in the next 10 to 20 years in the same iteration that it is today. And I think Facebook is going to get in a lot of trouble. Like the chickens are going to come home to roost. They have still yet to be held accountable for what happened in the election between Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton. They have yet to be held accountable for promoting genocide in various countries around the world. They have yet to be held accountable for promoting and amplifying hate and untruths on their platform. And they've been yet to be held accountable for where we sit in terms of fighting COVID-19, in terms of all the anti-vaccine and other types of misinformation that have been amplified through their platform. Facebook is not the custodians of our species and what we desire for our digital futures, or at least our ethical digital futures. And investors are catching on to the fact that they are hemorrhaging users. And that's why their stock performance is down 50% since we launched our ETF. But users themselves are seeking solace in other ways to communicate. Facebook just isn't the future. And so he pivoted to this VR. And that's going to fail. It is essentially already failed and he's trying to resurrect it. I don't think the future of Facebook is bright. Uh, I'm not worried, for instance, about them winning the Web3 race by any stretch of the imagination. I'm worried what they continue to do through the Facebook platform in terms of voters, democratic principles, what's happening throughout the world geopolitically, our mental and physical health is at risk. And now he sees the writing on the wall with TikTok and now Instagram is becoming more of a TikTok platform. And I think that's going to just amplify all of the issues that Instagram has been known to have that we learned from Francis Hogan, the whistleblower that came before Congress. There's so much to unpack here. <laughs> We're not going to have enough time for that. But I, I do want to say that the impressive thing for me about what Mark Zuckerberg is doing is the ability to pivot a company at that size 
more from an entrepreneurial perspective, I think that's admirable what he's trying to do. Having said that, we are looking at a company that 99% of their profits come from the core business, which is all the issues we described on the podcast at length today and the role of social media in the social condition, at least in the United States, but definitely in other countries as well. And I think to some extent we are witnessing a pretty big shift with Facebook as, as a company, with Meta as, a, as an organization, as well as the, the desire that Zuckerberg has to really take control of his own destiny because of the fear of what Apple has been doing over the years and his dependability on Apple as a platform. And he's pursuing that by trying to build a competing platform, but with a lot of legacy development that may not be suitable at all either from a film factor perspective or from the type of experiences people are going to use. And it doesn't help that, as you said, few people below the age of 20 are actually on Facebook. Some of them, I would suspect, may not even know the name Facebook. And this is only going to continue, which is part, by the way, maybe again, a kind of a, a, a sarcastic anecdote here is why I tweeted, I think earlier this year that I believe by the end of the decade, a company like Roblox will have a bigger market cap than Facebook. That was just a silly tweet I've done. It's definitely something that could happen. I think that Roblox had obviously a peak of users during COVID when everybody was at home. But I think Roblox has the, the inspirational leadership and the team that want to build a world for both children. And I think these children are becoming adults as well. And so there's a room there to expand their universe of users. As they grow the platform, I think that your prediction may, may be an accurate one. To just conclude that point, I'm actually going to bring to the podcast the person who leads all of their civility initiatives at Roblox to talk about how do we actually build a safe metaverse and what does that look like and what are the challenges we're going to have to deal with. Stay tuned for that. Michael, just before we wrap up, one last question that I always like to ask our guests is what's the one key takeaway you want the listeners today to take from our conversation? I mean, the takeaway from this conversation is that democracy is worth fighting for and that don't be complacent and just scroll through your TikTok or your Instagram or your social media. It's really important to ensure that you're educated and try to find the a media appetite that's providing you with factual information so that we have a chance to even get to uh, what we're looking to do, which is this more immersive experience online. We can only get there through a, a process that is commensurate with the human condition. And I think that we've adjusted the human condition in a way that needs to be adjusted back to where it was so that we can continue to evolve in a way that is just a more accepting and democratic civilization. And so that would be the key takeaway, just to not be a sort of a cog. This sort of tribalism and partisanship is being amplified by these media companies by Web 2 and soon to be Web 3 and be skeptical whenever you're engaged in any kind of interaction with what's happening on the internet. Michael Orbach, founder and managing partner of Subversive Capital. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was awesome. Awesome conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Jan. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Into the Metaverse. We hope you learned a lot and explored new aspects of the metaverse. 